but I was in a seminary course with a professor who's trying to make this very point of how pervasive white supremacy is. And he he pulled up a catalog and he said, all right, let's look, you know, every one of you, no matter which program you're doing here at the seminary, you all have to take some core theology classes. And he pulls these up, right? And they're just called theology. And he's like, and then there's electives. You can do, you know, African, African American theology. You can do Asian American theology. You can do Latino American theology. But he pointed out, he's like, well, you won't see a category called Euro theology or white theology. That, why? <laughs> because that's just considered the baseline. That's considered the norm, right? The, 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 the European theologians who reflected on, you know, scriptures and wrote about those, those are considered the foundation of theology. And then all these other ones, African American, Asian American, Latino American, they're considered auxiliary. They can, they're considered to be kind of coloring in or filling in. He's like, that's just one of the, that's just one of the everyday examples of which, which we don't even notice it where white supremacy exists. Where where that, that, that's a little definition of it. Like we think of white theologians as supreme. They're the ones who have kind of the final word. And then all the other non-white theologians, you know, kind of join in the chorus of it. Welcome to another episode of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I am Seth, your host. The conversation today is heavy. It's challenging. Had the privilege and the opportunity to speak with Pastor Daniel Hill, who is a pastor of a large multi-ethnic church uh, in Chicago. He's also the author of a new book that came out late 2017 called Wide Awake. I don't want to take anything away from the interview, so let me just say this. America, we, we have to push into the topics of race. It is not easy. It is not comfortable. But the sobering fact is that as a people and as a country, and this is me speaking as a white middle-class man, we don't want to talk about race. However, we can no longer just sit back and let things be untouchable. We can no longer stand idle when issues arise. We've got to educate ourselves more importantly, we have to educate ourselves on both sides. There is history to both sides. What we have to learn will have value. And what we learn to value matters. Do we value our status, our privilege, our history over others? Or do we value the people that bear the image of our Christ? I'm going to say that again. People bear the image of Christ. So with that, let's get into the conversation with Pastor Daniel Hill. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. It's it is a uh, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, Seth. That's wonderful to be on your show. There's going to be many 
that are unfamiliar with you, uh, I've become accustomed to you as I was researching the topic for this show and, and found your voice keep bubbling up to a conversation. And so I become a bit familiar with your background and your history. Can you kind of walk us through just, you know, what makes you, you kind of your upbringing in the church and, and lead that into what you're doing now. And then, and then we'll proceed to talking a little bit about, you know, race and, and the church and, and the world that we live in. Um, yeah, sure. Well, I'm a Chicago guy all my life. So, um, born here, born into the church. My father was a minister as well. And, um, also a scholar was part of one of the first study Bibles out on the market. So kind of, I'm sure I learned an English word before this, but the first word I actually remember saying is Dikaiosune. <laughs> My dad teaching me that Greek word. So that's uh, I've been familiar with biblical concepts since pretty much I was what is that? So the the Kaio what what is that? Dikaiosune, the uh, Greek word for righteousness or justice, depending on how you translate it. But oh. yeah, I remember, I remember my dad teaching me that. That's that's actually the first conscious memory of a word I have. <laughs> Sing Dikaiosune. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not dad. So uh, he was he, Kaiosune. <laughs> yeah, so he was he would that was his kind of claim to fame is he was um, a Bible scholar, so he would bring up original Greek or Hebrew with them and just preach straight out of the original text and. That the crowd he drew is folks who kind of fancied themselves as knowing the Bible well, but were looking for original language insights that they couldn't find on their own. So um, that's the kind of church environment I grew up in. Nice. When I went off, when I went off to college, uh, I, I was not planning on going to ministry. My undergrad was in business, and I came of age from the dot com era. So I worked full time during college while going to school in a dot com, and then joined an internet startup company. When I graduated college, and that brought me out by Willow Creek Community Church, a large church here in the suburbs, and I ended up going on staff there and worked there for most of my 20s, and then planted the church I'm at now, River City Community Church, in January of 2003. It's in the uh, Humble Park neighborhood of Chicago. So I'm not I'm not all that familiar with Chicago. It's 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 on my list of cities to visit. I've I've been to many of the big ones, but not that one. So where is that in relation to I guess you know the the Chicago that we all think of or the Chicago that we see on TV when we you know when we watch sports or 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 that what's kind of that frame of reference for for the community that your church is nested in? Chicago's got like three main sections: the north side, the south side, and the west side. And each have kind of their own distinct personalities. So. Humble Park, where we're at, is kind of right where the West Side begins, and so typically West Side associated is associated with just black, but our neighborhood is half black and half Latino, and so we're kind of in a little bit of a borderland between kind of the center of the city and where it starts turning into the West Side. You wrote a, a book recently that came out in 2017 called "White Awake," and I've read pieces of the book. I've not finished it in its entirety, but I have enjoyed reading it, and I will tell you. As, as a fellow Caucasian, middle-income, classed man in America, I have recently, over the last decade or so, come to struggle with a lot of the same stuff that you speak about. And so, kind of what was, why did, the title of the book is very, not off-putting, but very out there, very catch your attention, it's in your face, and you're curious about it. So what, what led you to want to write this book? You know, I, I mean, looking back over the course of my life, there was a lot of moments where I think I was beginning to realize there's something more that I need to wrestle with, but I chose not to, which as an aside, I think, you know, there's a lot of conversation on white privilege. And while I think that's a conversation worth having at the end of the day, I think I like how my friend Julian DeShazer is a pastor on the South Side defines privilege. He defines privilege as simply having the ability to walk away. 
And um, with that simple definition, I can see how I've exercised privilege over the course of almost my entire life, where this has always been an enormously important issue in our country. Um, but some of us don't have to deal with it if we don't want to. And that was me most of my life. When I worked at Willow Creek and, you know, young 20-something minister, everything was new for me, including officiating weddings. And uh, um, where this really began was it was the first cross-cultural wedding I'd ever officiated. And that wasn't something I really paid attention to until the wedding actually came. But the groom was of Indian descent, and uh, he told me that at the rehearsal dinner the night before, you know, I, I would be taken deep into kind of the Indian culture, and was indeed, and it was a very memorable night, and you know, the, the music, the food, the dancing, everything was a really incredible experience for me, so I was feeling very swept up in it, so I grabbed him afterwards and just wanted to thank him for inviting me to his world, and I said, you know, hey, I'm so jealous of you that you have a culture. I wish I had a culture, and just want to thank you for bringing me into yours for this evening. And what became a very defining moment for me, he's a very gregarious, kind of fun-loving guy, but he got very serious in that moment on the night before his wedding. He put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Daniel, not only do you have a culture, but when your culture comes in contact with other cultures, it almost always wins. It would be great for you and everybody if you would actually learn about your culture. And then he walked back out to the dance floor, and <laughs> that was, despite the fact that there have been many moments in the course of my life where I should have been paying attention, that was the one that really grabbed a hold of me. Um, it was just very provocative. It was, it was borderline offensive to me based on where I was at at that moment. But this idea that I, not, I not only had a culture, but that my culture almost always wins when it comes to another contact with other cultures, yeah. that really became kind of the genesis of you know a more intentional journey on my part to become awake. I assume that was after the wedding, because that's that's kind of a drop the mic kind of comment, like something you'd put on Facebook or Twitter and then immediately block someone so they can't rebut. So how did that, (laughs) you know, that happens to me a lot um, because people, uh, truth is offensive uh, when you take away all the emotion um, I've come to find out. So he says this to you and then where do you go from there? Or I guess if, if, you know, if it was, if it was me here you know, in central Virginia, you know, someone after Charlottesville says something, whatever it be, and then just leaves, you know, goes home. And, and you yeah. know, so how do you then, how do you go forward from a comment like that? Yeah, well, I wish I could tell a more noble story. I mean, it's, it's, it wasn't like, oh, yes, this is the truth. I need to find more about it. It was more like I try to, I try to, I try to talk my way around it inside my own head and to kind of diminish him and diminish the comments. But, you know, for whatever reason, at that, at that moment, you know, God let that one stick and I just couldn't shake it. And so it was very much still a defensive reaction, but I kind of went on the quest to disprove his, his theory, you know, that I had a culture, my culture always wins and to kind of form an argument with the intention of eventually going back to him and disputing it. But um, the more I kind of began to talk to people that weren't just in my kind of white middle class cultural bubble, you know, the more I found almost a universal resonance with what he said. And almost it's kind of like when you talk to people who are thinking about this stuff, that wasn't even like shocking to them. Right. So it was so shocking to me, but it was like such a no duh to people who were thinking about it. And so I began to realize that there's just kind of this whole world, this whole level of discourse happening that based on kind of my white upbringing, I had just never been exposed to and had never really needed to enter into like what specifically? What would be some of those examples of? Well, this can't be true, or this shouldn't be true. So, what were what were well, you know, those I, for you? You know, I mean, I would say you know, I grew up in an environment that that, that kind of pretty actively promoted colorblindness, and uh, you know, nobody actually used those words. That's how we functioned, you know. But and especially within our church setting, you know, so there's always this kind of intention behind theology to say, hey, all people are created equal. God loves everybody. 
you know, and so therefore we don't see difference. And there's those bad people out there who are racist, but, you know, we're good Christian people who see everybody as equal. And, you know, that, that made sense to me growing up to treat everybody. And so even though I periodically would have interactions with people of color, you know, I never took the time to consider what the impact of their experience of being a person of color might be in our country, because I just kind of looked at them through a colorblind lens, you know? And so, um, I, I, you know, I, I think that's some of the stuff where I began to wrestle with and say, you know, is there something more substantial to the system of race? Is there something more substantial to the way we've kind of organized ourselves and the way we see each other? And, you know, you know, I can go in more to that if you'd like, but I mean, I think at a macro level, those were the kind of things where I began to explore and just about began to realize like, oh, wow, this is like, this, this is a deep rabbit hole and um, I've just not considered any of it. And I really should. It's not really optional. It's only optional in the sense that my life's not really a risk because of it. So I'm never really forced to think about it. But for so many other people, like their, 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 their livelihood, their well-being, sometimes even their literal safety is dependent on them navigating these kinds of things. And yeah. I just began to become so aware of the fact that the kinds of things I needed to think about were so different than the kind of things that people who weren't white had to think about. Well, you touched on it right there. So I was listening to a, a show, I can't remember the name of it, but it's it's all about the history of the Civil War. Um, but it's told by people that that are much more educated in the history of it than I am. And I am a banker for, for a living. And and I just just a few days ago learned that, you know, Protestant American plantation owners here in central Virginia or across the country used black people as capital the same way you would use a tractor, but usually use them because the tractor was worth more as a way to secure wow. to secure funding for their farm. And so you'd have J.P. Morgan Chase and that type of stuff holding a lien on a on a person. Um, wow. Yeah. And so, wow. yeah, I, I think, I think you're right. History is a big part of that. I remember I texted that to, a, I have a good friend that's black and I was like, I don't, how is this, why have I never been told this? And I don't think they'd been told it either. So yeah, history is, well, history is whitewashed. It is what it is. What is our white culture then? You alluded to learning about it. What have you come to find out? So when he says that it always wins, uh, in the lens of what you do for a living in, in the audience of this show, how as a church does that has that happened? How as a church has when we show up as a white church, how have we won? You know, I think that's where we have to like start to dive into the history of things and it took me a while to wrap my head around this. But you know, there there's these really triggering terms, especially for most of us who are white. You know, like for instance the term white supremacy is often a very charged, triggering kind of word and um, oftentimes because people, when they hear that, associate it with the most extreme forms, right? You know, the combat boots or swastika or, you know, tiki tortures or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but I can come and understand the history of what that term means. It's a helpful beginning. Um, though it's a charge of words, it's actually a very straightforward term. White supremacy is just, a, it's literally just saying whiteness is supreme, right? Whiteness is superior. And, and that narrative that whiteness is what is most valuable is such a, foundational part of the experience of everybody who lives in this country where, where, in fact, I, I like the term, uh, Brian Stevenson's the founder of the equal justice initiative. He's kind of out your way. And, uh, um, I think his stuff is really worth interacting. He wrote the bestseller, um, uh, just mercy, but he uses this term he calls the narrative of racial difference. And this has been helpful for a lot of the white folks who are trying to like wrap their heads around and helpful for me as well. He says the narrative of racial difference, it's a narrative that, doesn't just recognize differences in race. That's actually not a bad thing. In fact, I think you can make a case biblically 
that God recognizes different cultures, different cultures are created in God's image. I don't think recognizing the differences is what's problematic. Um, the problem is that when historically, when we've recognized racial differences, we've then assigned value to human people, human beings based on those differences. We've said some people are more valuable with white. It basically is a, a racial hierarchy. We've said white is most valuable and black is most inferior as evidenced by the anecdote you just shared there, right? Where mm-hmm. it's like, a black person could be treated as property, which a white you could never put a lien against a white person, right? Like they they were fully human. You can't use them as an object, but black people were considered less than human. And um, Brian Stevenson, I think, accurately accurately says that if you don't understand the history of the narrative of racial of racial difference, you won't understand why things are still as problematic as they are, because there's certain systems that were built on the narrative of racial difference, like slavery, that have been overturned, but the narrative itself has never been challenged. This idea that we basically created a racial hierarchy that says whites most valuable, blacks least valuable. Everybody else finds their meaning in between those two. And that narrative is so powerful and potent. And you see it in the news every day and you hear it in the national discourse, even in the most current debates about immigration. You know, there's kind of these now legendary comments about certain countries that are, you know, expletives. And then, yeah. you know, which really represents one end of the narrative of racial difference. And then, there's why can't we have more immigrants from Norway, which represents the other end of, I mean, that's just the narrative of racial difference. That's how it communicates is that whiteness is what's most valuable. Places like Haiti or Africa are least valuable and everybody in between, you know, finds their worth based on that. And so I, I, I think that's a real important starting point in this to realize that there's this narrative out there that the enemy is not a person at the end of the day. The enemy is this narrative. It's this lie that says human value is tied to where you fall in the racial hierarchy. And so in that sense, this is not unique to white people to wrestle with this. This is on everybody. It's just that because white people live in a system that says white is most valuable, even if a white person verbalizes a disagreement with that, it doesn't change the fact that that's the air we breathe. It's the smog that's around us. It's the DNA of every system and structure in our society. And I just, I would contend that without understanding how powerful that narrative is and how pervasive it is historically and present times, I think it's, I mean, it's just, we're really handicapped in our ability to love our neighbor as ourselves, much less love ourselves, um, if we can't see how serious the threat is of that narrative. I want to live to be a life laid down for heaven's sake In a world that's lost all sight of love Because death's dark shadows rule the night Like a burning flame Let my life proclaim The one who is What would you say to someone that says, well, that's fine, but is there a way to how do I say this? Is there a way to elevate another culture without necessarily devaluing mine? I, mean, I, I, don't, yeah, I don't think we want to be in the business of elevating other cultures. I mean, I think that's when we're completely anti-biblical at that point, right? Because all people are created in God's image. That's like the phone. That's the opening page of scriptures, the Imago Dei, that all people bear the image of yeah. God. And we're talking about elevation or under, like whenever somebody's being lifted up or anybody else is putting down, we're like, instantly in the realm of like serious sin category. And so I, I'm not ever proposing that the way you fix it is by re-elevating somebody else. I mean, it's just, we have to, we have to subvert and eliminate the entire structure that raises up some and yeah. puts others down. Yeah. It's the wrong, it's the wrong metric to grade worth or the wrong, that's probably a bad way to say it, but um, yeah, the wrong, the wrong, the wrong measurements, the wrong unit of whatever it needs to be. 
Well, yeah. And if I can even jump in, it's, it's like not even, yeah, it, I, I think that's some of the work I'm trying to do with people is to like realize like this isn't just a dynamic. I think it's the central dynamic in so many ways. This idea that some people are held to be up more human, some people will be less human. Like that is the foundational fight, like at the end of the day. And it's not just kind of like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. But like that's like if, if somebody actually realizes that, right, like that that's the narrative, that's a lie that's being broadcast to every sector of our society. That mm-hmm. Some people are more human, some people are less human, which I would argue is just as powerfully being broadcast today as it has ever been. I mean, that, that, I mean, it's just an absolutely, it's an absolute confrontation to how God proclaims, you know, humankind is made, which is according to his image. Yeah. So you can choose to value the status quo. You can choose to value your privilege or you can choose to value an image of Christ, but but you have to choose. You have to choose. Yeah. I'd say that's right. Yeah. I've heard you say, and I don't know, or maybe you've written it or said it, but you talk a bit about, you know, that you're in a privileged culture when you're learning because you can go to a seminary and learn about African church history or other culture and church histories. Can you speak to that again a, a little bit? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think those are some of the... So, yeah, when I talk about that, I'm like when people say, gosh, white supremacy, that's such a trigger word. I don't think of myself as a white supremacist. I'm like, well, of course. I mean, none of us think of ourselves as white supremacists, but I'm not actually... When I talk about white supremacy, I'm not actually talking about somebody's individual actions. <laughs> I'm talking about the way that every system in society continues to preference and normalize and even hold up whiteness as superior. So that's an example I think is a very clear example is like in the sem and this is in almost every seminary I know, um, uh, but I was in a seminary course with a professor who's trying to make this very point of how pervasive white supremacy is. And he, he pulled up a catalog and he said, all right, let's look, you know, every one of you, no matter which program you're doing here at the seminary, you all have to take some core theology classes. And he pulls these up, right? And they're just called theology. He's like, and then there's electives. You can do, you know, African, African American theology. You can do Asian American theology. You can do Latino American theology. But he pointed out, he's like, well, you won't see a category called Euro theology or white theology. That, why? <laughs> because that's just considered the baseline. That's considered the norm, right? The, 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 the European theologians who reflected on, you know, scriptures and wrote about those, those are considered the foundation of theology. And then all these other ones, African-American, Asian-American, Latino-American, they're considered auxiliary. They can, they're considered to be kind of coloring in or filling in. He's like, that's just one of the, that's just one of the everyday examples of which, which we don't even notice it where white supremacy exists where that, that, that's a literal definition of it. Like we think of white theologians as being supreme. They're the ones who have kind of the final word. And then all the other non-white theologians, you know, kind of join in on a chorus of it. Yeah. And I think you can find examples of that in churches and organizations and schools, like ways in which whiteness is just communicated as kind of the standard or the norm or even the epitome of what people should be striving for. It's, it's not people <laughs> combat boots on behind curtains doing evil things. It's just this kind of deeply ingrained thought process that whiteness is superior. Well, this is an oversimplification, but you know, Jesus, I would argue, has been whitewashed. Every picture you see of Jesus, they're all white. And the, and the moment that you throw out an African-American Jesus or a or any other nationality Jesus, which I think yeah. are honestly more truthful. Every, every nationality should be able to have Jesus look however it needs to look, because Jesus represents everyone. But, I mean, he's been, at least in my opinion, uh, co-opted by, by, a, by a Caucasian skin. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's another very powerful example of white supremacy. I, I remember talking to a pastor who saw a picture of black Jesus, and he felt like that it was literally a heresy to do. And I was like, you've seen white Jesus your entire life. Have you ever called that heresy? And he had to admit he was more uncomfortable seeing a black Jesus than a white Jesus, right? And it's like, well, like, I think to your point, if you're going to guess, I mean, he was a Palestinian Middle East carpenter outside most of the time, right? If you had to guess what side he was on, it's probably on the darkest 
But even even for, from a mo- even if you just take that out, it's like why is it that a black Jesus makes him uncomfortable, a white Jesus doesn't? Right? I think you're right. I think it's like the ways we've internalized the white supremacy along the way. This narrative that one is more valuable. So if you're going to err, go on the side of white. Right? And we don't think that stuff overtly, but that really is part of the messaging we've received. That if you're going to miss on one side, miss on white, because that's always going to be the safer bet. And um, so I think that's a very powerful example of one of the ways that we just internalize that stuff without even realizing it. I was on a, a committee to hire a pastor for our church here locally, and I remember one of the early, early stages of it, we had someone in, and they'd said, you know, you need to vision the community that your church is in and whether or not you're comfortable with it. Uh, if your community within a few mile radius of your church is mostly African American or mostly Latino or single moms or Asian or whatever adjective you need to use, that should be in your interview pool, not that they necessarily get in, you know, in some form of spiritual Rooney rule, for lack of a better metaphor, but that you should intentionally seek those out instead of disqualifying people because they didn't come from the right seminary or they didn't come from, you know, from, they're not the right color or they're not the, you know, when you look on the wall of pastors throughout the church, they just, they don't fit the mold. So how do you, and what are your thoughts on that a bit? Would you agree with that? Well, I, I mean, I think I understand where that's coming from, and I think there's perhaps room for that that, that consideration. Uh, in, in my estimation, that that's still closer to the surface and farther from the root. Um, you know, I, I th- so I, I think of a conversation I had with a white pastor who was, you know, trying to be very intentional to hire. In fact, they made it a churchwide mandate to white church, and they made it a churchwide mandate that the next associate pastor they hired was going to be a person of color without question. Like, that just was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so he was very excited. And I understood the intent, and, and, and I don't want to discourage that. But I said, you know, if the deeper problem is the kind of conspiracy of white supremacy in so many ways, which is what I think is the deeper problem, I think there's this kind of unchallenged, unexamined, unexposed kind of reality of how whiteness is still such a dominant force, not just in society, but in the church. And I, that's to me, that's the core of the book, Wide Awake, is... I mean, I don't see it as being unique to just white people. Like, that's a force that everybody has to reckon with. It's just that most people who are not white see it much sooner and are reckoning with it. Most of us who are white don't see it, and therefore it's very almost like hostile to us when we're told about it. So I said, if that's really the challenge, then, you know, tell me, like, where's your – you don't need a pastor of color (laughs) to be able to take on that challenge, right? In fact, I would say hire a person of color on staff – is helpful only to the degree the church is ready to start talking about the presence of white supremacy, right? So if your church is already ready, then perhaps that person of color can be a really helpful asset in going deeper. But if you're actually going to bring out a person of color to be the one to name that, like what happens when he starts seeing it or she starts seeing it within the church? Like, how's the yeah. church going to respond, right? Yeah. And he, his, he like went, he went pale. He's like, he probably would get run out of the building if he talked about white supremacy. And I said, well, then I think it's great to want to hire a person of color, but why would you do that to them? <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, like you, 
the one to, to name that. Like, you know, you should be the one, because there's a lot of concrete things you could do in your church to start to ready them for something like that coming on. And so it's under the guise of well-intentioned, but like, you're going to actually harm him and probably the church by doing that because they're not ready to even have this conversation. Right? So, so I, that's one of the things I tell people is like, I think multicultural is great, but only to the degree that it enhances your ability to talk honestly about this stuff. And if it's actually a way to skirt having to talk about it, I actually think it's worse to be multicultural. I think it'd be much better for an all white church to have honest conversations about the historical and present reality of some of this stuff and begin to do the work to name it and see the, I would go so far to say even demonic kind of backing behind it and, and learn how to kind of develop theological vocabulary for naming it and, you know, combating it. I'd way rather see a white church be intentional about the conversation they're having than to have a church become slightly multicultural and become even less conversational about this stuff, right? Like, I actually think... What are some of the ways then that as a pastor, you know, if, if there's if there's a pastor listening or someone that's church planning or someone like yourself, what are some of the ways then as a leader of a church that you are able to, what are some things to look for to recognize that, you know, your church is at a tipping point. We can go back to the status quo or they're there. I can see X, Y, or Z and they're there. We should really begin to lean in and do this messy, hard work. What are some of those things that you would, that you would look for? It sounds so basic what I'm going to say first, but I just don't think it is. Um, I, you know, it, at the core level, Jesus is associated with truth, right? And the devil is associated with lies, right? John 8, 8 32 through 34, Jesus talks about how the devil's a liar. His native tongue is that of a liar. He's the father of lies. Jesus talks about how he's the truth. The truth will set you free. John 14, 6, Jesus is on the way, the truth, and life, right? So, so there's power in exposing lies, and there's power in telling the truth. And as basic as that sounds, most, like, most capital M, most white churches don't ever talk about the truth and lies behind race, and the, the lies is this narrative, you know, of, of racial difference, this narrative that there's human worth attached to where somebody falls on the racial hierarchy. And that's, I mean, to me, that's indisputable. There's a thousand, I mean, it, it's so easy to get material on that and to build that case. And then the truth, of course, is that, you know, not only that human human values found in the Imago Dei, but that there's also a war around this, that we can't just proclaim that, actually, we have to attack all the things that dehumanize and disfigure, you know, attempt to really undermine God's creation. And, you know, I, my experience says that if somebody will even just start to tell the truth and the lies, they'll, their church will start shaking, and not necessarily in the most comfortable of ways, but even just a basic truth like that, that the system of race is built on a lie, that human worth is tied to racial makeup, and that the truth of God's kingdom is to dismantle that. Um, that's more than what most white Christians can handle. And so I would say church, start there and see if the church can even handle the like, kind of very basic conversation on truth and lies. And if they can handle it, then that sets the stage to start saying, how do we live more deeply into this truth and how do we combat these lies both in our own lives but and in our neighborhood and in society? And that turns into a great conversation. And I think... Um, I love that conversation. Somebody can get there. But my experience is, and I, I hate to be so pessimistic on this, my experience is just most white churches can't actually have even that basic of a conversation because it's too threatening to kind of a house of cards that they've been built to believe around race. Yeah. No, I agree. I remember after Charlottesville, uh, both many friends, because uh, I live just 20 miles west of Charlottesville. So right after that happened, you could feel the tension in the room. And we all knew well, I, my my perspective was if your church is not talking about how this is not of of God, how this is just evil, then you're in the wrong church. But so how how then do you 
how how do you make sure you guard against people feeling so offended or so taken aback or so hurt that they that they don't that they stop listening? How do you make sure that that doesn't happen? Because you'll hear people say, "Well, you know, I don't want my pastor to do that. My pastor or my deacon or whoever they're just supposed to. You know, I want to come to church to feel good. I want to come to church to feel like I'm, you know, being a good Christian. So how do you mm-hmm. guard against that?" Yeah, well, I mean, my answer to this is going to be specific specific to pastors. I realize the audience is probably much broader than that. But I do think for white pastors, there is a count the cost with this. Um, you know, what's most celebrated in our day and age is churches that grow fast, have big budgets and big staffs. And, you know, we're kind of all tempted to try to get on that train. And talking honestly about this stuff kind of goes in the opposite direction, right? Like to your point, that's, I don't think it is possible. I think if you've got a bunch of white folks in your congregation and that's not been historically how the church has talked about this stuff, once you start talking about it, most of them are not going to say, oh, good, finally, I've been waiting for this. Most are going to react poorly to it. You're going to have to be prepared to stand on the truth. You have to be prepared to kind of listen to people who are upset. You have to do be prepared to kind of shepherd folks through that. You have to be prepared for the fact that some are going to leave despite your best efforts. And those that's all costly stuff. That all requires a lot. And if it was just a social issue, I don't think it would be worth doing. So I think there's a theological conviction that has to form that this really is a mandate as part of the establishment of Jesus' kingdom. It's a mandate of growing full disciples to tell the truth and you know be able to see what's happening around us in society. And so I do think there's a pastoral conviction that has to form, and then there is there is a count the cost. I, I I wish that wasn't true. I really do. I wish I could like spin this to say it's a great way to kind of take your church to the next level in terms of its growth and impact. But I think. Evidence suggests that when pastors begin to talk about this openly in white churches, they usually go backwards before they go forward. And I think that's a just a genuine count the cost thing that has to be part of the equation. I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, you see it everywhere. So I want to, not to oversimplify things, but but come full circle, and then and then I know we're coming closer to the end of our, of our time. So I want to talk briefly about race. So, I mean, race, I've got three kids. None of my kids were born knowing that they were white, or that white was a, a measure of of, uh, that wipe was a way to identify yourself. So obviously it hasn't been around for forever, but my question is, is, is race at all helpful for, you know, the church or for humanity at all? Does it have any purpose or should we just throw it all out? No. Yeah. I, to me, I distinguish, I put ethnicity and culture together in one category and I put race in a different category. So I think it's important to differentiate. I think ethnicity and culture, I think are very important. I think, you know, we have passages like Revelation 7, 9 that says when we're on the other side, when we're in heaven in our glorified state, God still will see the differences in ethnicity and nationality and culture. That will be part of the heavenly chorus, right? So God's clearly not colorblind. God clearly wasn't colorblind from the very beginning. Ethnicity and culture, I think, are reflections of God. They're imperfect. Our times are even sinful, <laughs> just like people. You know, they need to be redeemed. They need to be thought about. So I think ethnicity and culture are what we're talking about and are redeemable. The system of race, though, that we've created that really is based on colonialism and slavery, right? We had to justify why European nations were taking over nations of, of mostly people of color and then dominating them. That's how race formed. And then slavery is part of how race formed. We needed some way to justify owning human bodies. And the only way to do that was to say black people were less human. So the system of race really is designed to dehuman and belittle everybody that's not white. And then to in an artificial way, hold up whiteness as a standard so, like, if we're truly talking about races, there is nothing. Yeah, it's it's not. It's bad. It's sinful. It's diabolical. It's cruel. Um, yeah, eliminating it is the only task I think that's before us when it comes to race. I agree, and I try to, you know, 
you always everybody says, but my son is is in a, in a stage of his life now that he comes home from school and is beginning to realize the differences between people. Uh, and you just hear it in some of the words he says, and, and my daughter to a lesser extent, uh, and I can say as a parent, and I'm sure every parent deals with this, that is, it's so hard to navigate. Uh, and it was really hard through the last presidential election because you got the signs and everybody talking about everything. I want to end our time with, you talk about there are stages of waking up. Can you go into those? I believe there's seven. I might be wrong. Yeah, I just, the, the idea being that um, for those of us who are white, um, because, you know, and there's like a lot of science behind this, you know, um, how kids come to even understand their own sense of cultural identity is influenced by the kinds of conversations they're having, the kind of things they're hearing in society. And so for a lot of, for a lot of children of color, they're, they're told very early on that they don't fit in, that they don't belong, that they're less valuable because they don't look a certain way. So they have to process this stuff from so early on. Whereas most of us who are white, we tend to be just immune to those messages because they're not threatening to us. So we may not walk around thinking we're superior, but that reverse is true too, where we're not receiving messages that feel threatening and put our sense of value, you know, uh, at odds because of what we're hearing. So it's just for most of us who are white, the earliest it usually happens is 20s, sometimes later, where we begin to start to, to seriously recognize that there's this racial system and these kind of messages around it. And so it, I don't know how to say it other than it's just kind of a handicap, right? Like none of us are ready to deal with this once the light bulb goes on. So the light bulb is kind of the first stage, you know, mm-hmm. where we have some kind of an encounter. And so what I'm just trying to talk people through, there tend to be these kind of waves white folks go through, you know, sometimes we're defensive, sometimes we're not defensive and listen, but we feel super disoriented. So disoriented is another stage. Sometimes we take it very seriously and we feel a tremendous amount of shame that we're white and we're part of a community that's, you know, done a lot of horrible things, people of color. Um, sometimes we end up on the other side of it and we think we're like the enlightened white person who's better than everybody else, right? We tend to kind of zig and zag into these different stages. And so I've just tried to, from both my own experience and just, you know, close to 20 years now, walking with white folks who are trying to understand cultural identity, I try to map out seven different stages that aren't necessarily linear. And they're certainly not, once you go through it, you're doing it through it forever. I think you tend to come in and out of different stages. But I try to just put language around some of the stages that I think we go through as we get a clear and clear sense of how the world works and how we can kind of rise above that and live a different kind of way. Sure. And so in brief, so the first stage you're saying then is, is the light bulb goes off. And then yeah, just... that, that, that one I'm encountering. Yeah, second stage I call denial. Um, yeah, most of us, the first time we hear this, don't want to believe it's true and tend to be defensive and dismissive of it. And for some people, that's they stay in that stage their entire lives, you know, but that tends to be the first one. Um, once, if somebody can get through that, disoriented tends to be the next stage. Um, it's just, it's, it's discombobulating when you think you understood everything and then you start to realize there's a whole other reality out there that's really you know, powerful and pervasive and we've just never seen it before. So it just, it's, it feels like somebody changed the rules on us all of a sudden, you know? And so um, learning how to be resilient in those, learning how to kind of trust in who we are and who God, that, that becomes a key part of the disorientation. Um, yeah. Shame. Shame is a big part of it. Um, um, that, that, yeah, oftentimes I see people feel, yeah, feel like they're kind of less than once the, once they go deeper and deeper into it. Uh, self-righteous is a stage that I talk about where, yeah, you kind of think, you know, once you get deeper into it, you tend to kind of quickly get to the point where you think you're better than all the other white people, you know, and I think there's a lot of destructiveness in that stage too. 
And I do think there comes a point where you start to become really awake to this stuff. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean you know what to do, but you're starting to really see it. You just start to see it around. You go into new environments and you can just see it right away. You can see the ways that certain stance, certain cultures are held up higher and certain ones are belittled, you know, where certain people are treated more human, some less human. You just start to see it everywhere. And that's, it's both freeing and paralyzing all at the same time because you see it all around you. You don't know what to do. And then I put it as the last stage because I think the action stage should be last. The last stage is active participation where, you know, you, you, you see much more clearly than you used to. You're in a community with other people of color who see you've got kind of support system around you in terms of knowing what kinds of actions really make a difference and where you're very intentional to live your life in a way that not only is a witness to a different kind of way, but actually actively tries to dismantle, you know, kind of this evil system that belittles and dehumanizes other people. I hear I hear you say that, and I hear correlations to something I saw a while ago from, I think it was a psychologist, uh, James Fowler, I think is his name, and he's got these six stages of faith, and it sounds similar to that. You know, you, you, know, you, you're, you're, you have something that you hold that's just at a preschool level, just surface level, and as you mature, yeah. as you age— you know your faith in whatever your religious tradition is, or I guess in this case your you know your ethnicity or your culture or your privilege. You know you question it, you become comfortable with that, and some people never move past it, and other people come full circle to being in a place where they can just serve other people, and they've moved beyond all of the other garbage, for lack of a better word. Yeah, I'd like to end with this. So, what are some as as people are listening and they want to, either they feel convicted or 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 they feel motivated to begin to learn more about the history of, of both white culture and the cultures of others and how those two can share power, what would you say to those people or who are some of the authors like yourself or pastors or, or speakers that they can begin to engage with to, uh, to try to do this better? Yeah, well, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to show my hand with even the title of the book where, when I'm calling it awake, right? Because... Um, I, I think the I think the work is less about doing something uh, and more about you know becoming more aware and awake, which is in its own self in its own sake work. So, you know, I think if I was bottom lining it for somebody, it's doing the work to see the kind of history and power of this narrative that says human value is tied to where you fall on the racial spectrum. And for somebody that's white, I think there's a deep kind of self introspection that has to happen there. Where I mean, I, I assume anybody who's listening to this who's engaging, they already outrightly reject racism. I don't think you. I'm sure you're not going to be out here who still subscribes to that. Um, the, the the deeper work I think than just rejecting racism is to actually begin to go back over the course of your life and examine yourself and kind of look at where did you hear those messages that whiteness is superior and that blackness or Asianness or Latinoness or nativeness is you know less human and, and inferior and right, starting to starting to take note of the fact that, you know, we've been hearing this our whole lives and to be, begin reckoning with that a little bit, you know, I think that's some of the internal work. And I think the other hard work, and it takes a while, I think, to get clear on this, but the other hard work is to start to learn how this is not really just an individual thing, that it's kind of embedded into the systems and structures of society, where schools operate off of this narrative, workplaces operate off of this narrative, neighborhoods operate off of this narrative. And, you know, that's where social change really happens when we can kind of call out, dismantle that narrative within social systems. But we have to get practice before we can do that. We've got to be able to see it faster and with more clarity. And learning to see it and faster with more clarity, I think, is the work. And once you can start to 
see that and realize that white people aren't the enemy. That's never, that's never the point. But this narrative voice supremacy is the enemy, that it very much is a lie and that it's very destructive and it has to be dismantled really at all costs. Yeah, I think that's the work to position ourselves, to be able to see that in a way where we're not defensive, we're not feeling attacked, we're actually seeing it as a legitimate threat to both our neighbors and ourselves. And we're all starting to work together to try to name that and attack it. Well, again, I'll plug the book. Um, for those listening, uh, it, I'll link to it in the show notes, but please go out and buy the book. It is uh, The portions that I've read, and, and I fully intend to finish it over the course of this week, are fantastic. Seek out uh, Daniel on you know social media. Uh, engage with them on YouTube. And so where would you point people to, Daniel, to do that, to, to engage in a dialogue with you if they, if they feel so led? Uh, my, my social media handle is at Daniel Hill 1336 1336 Daniel Hill 1336 so I'm on all the different social media places I've also got a blog at PastorDanielHill.com I from time to time share some thoughts on so any of those are viable ways to get a hold of me well thank you again for your time today thank you for the uh, for the open and, and honest discussion I have, en- I have enjoyed it thanks very much thank you I really appreciate you hosting me on here thank you again I will you enjoyed today's episode with Daniel Hill. I am personally challenged by not only the work and the ministry that he's doing, but the way that he's doing it in. I think that so many of us could do so much more if we would just apply ourselves and recognize when the game is rigged and try to elevate others to the same rules. Church, continue to do the hard work, continue to wrestle with things, and continue to ask questions that you normally wouldn't ask at church. I promise you, from personal experience, When you wrestle with the hard topics, you find Jesus there, you find God there, and your faith will be better for it. Special thanks to Eric Nieder for the music that was used in today's episode. You can find more information about Eric and buy his music at ericnieder.com. You'll find that link in the show notes. I encourage you to listen to the newest song that he has out this year called Heaven is Where You Are. It's a beautiful song. As with all of the episodes and all the shows and all of the music, the Spotify playlist Can I Say This at Church will be where you want to pick those up. A huge thanks again to the Patreon supporters for your continued support of this show. To those of you that have not yet made that leap, please consider doing so. Uh, $1 a month is all that it takes. If you're honest, you probably have loose change on the desk or at home in your car a dollar. Consider it. Thank you all for your listening. We'll talk to you next week.